home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to episode 27 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. My name is Doug, and I've got some bad news for you. They're lying to you. They're lying to you. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but don't worry, because they are lying to me too. They've been lying to all of us. Well, maybe lying is too strong a word, but there is definitely some deception going on. I'm talking about the Canadian dream, or as it's known in the United States, the American dream. Not the dream itself, but a big part of it. I'm talking about the dream of home ownership. You know, a house on a piece of property with a white picket fence, two dogs and a cat, and two and a half kids playing in the backyard. Home ownership is something that we should all pursue, they tell us. But who is they? Who is selling us this dream? Well, there's the bank. Let us help you own your own home, they say. Wow, really? you do that for me? Well, shucks. But let's take a closer look. Why is the bank trying to sell you on this idea of home ownership? What could they possibly have to gain? The truth is that they're not trying to sell you a home. They are trying to sell you a mortgage. Even now, with mortgage rates still at historic lows, the banks do pretty good. Just go to any bank or mortgage company's website and you'll be able to find various calculators where you can find out how much house you can afford and what your payments will be. Just plug in the numbers. Now, the way interest is calculated in Canada is different than it is in the United States, but the numbers are pretty close. So anyway, I went to bankrate.com and here's the results. On a $200,000 mortgage, amortized over 25 years at 3.5% interest, you would pay just over $100,000 in interest to the bank. In Canada, the interest would be just under $100,000. So in both cases, the bank gets roughly 50% return on their investment. Sure, it's over 25 years, but still, Not too shabby. Back when I bought my first house, the interest rate was 7.8%. In that case, the interest paid over the life of a $200,000 mortgage would be about $250,000. What is that? 125% return on investment for the bank? And I can remember the interest rates being in the double digits, around 12 or 13% back um, back in the 1980s. Go ahead. Plug in those numbers for yourself. So, the bottom line, the bank is going to make their money. Especially in the first few years of the loan where most of your payment goes to interest. Now, you can argue that the bank has taken on a certain amount of risk, but consider this. Let's say after five years you fall on hard times and can't make your payments and the bank finally forecloses on your house. And let's say you bought the house for... $250,000 with 
a $50,000 down payment and a mortgage of 200 grand at three and a half percent. Okay. I realize that's a lot of numbers, but three and a half percent on $200,000 is what you've been paying back to the bank. After five years, you still owe the bank over $172,000. After five years, you have paid well over $32,000 to the bank just in interest. And you've paid out $60,000 in your mortgage payments on top of your $50,000 down payment. <laughs> is your head spinning yet? I, I, I know mine is. So what you have is about $78,000 in equity. Remember, that includes the $50,000 down payment and the sixty grand that you've paid out over five years. And after all that, you've only grown your equity by $28,000. But all of that is out the window now. Now, foreclosures can be complicated, but very simply, it's all about the bank getting their money back. So as long as that house sells at auction for $172,000, they're happy. Remember, they've already got a tidy $32,000 in interest over that five years. So the house can sell for $78,000 less than what you paid for it. And the bank still manages, manages to walk away with about four grand while you are out 110,000. In some cases, you're entitled to anything over what you owe the bank. In other cases, you're not. It all depends on the foreclosure. But Best case scenario, that house would have to sell for over $280,000 in order for you to walk away in the same position as the bank does when the house only sells for $172,000. Let me repeat that. The bank only needs the house to sell for $172,000. You, on the other hand, need the house to sell for $280,000 in order for your positions to be the same. So tell me again, who's taking on the risk. And that's with interest rates being at historic lows. And that brings up another point. They, they being the banks talk about your house being your biggest investment. Financial planners talk about your house being one of your biggest assets, but here's the reality. If you are a first-time home buyer making the minimum down payment and amortizing that loan over a quarter century, which is typical for most first-time buyers, your house, your principal residence is not an asset. It's a liability. Remember the example that I gave earlier when talking about the foreclosure. But interest rates and amortization schedules aside, there are other expenses involved in home ownership. Houses need upkeep. Average lifespan of a furnace is about 15 to 20 years. Average lifespan of a central air unit is about the same. Um, an asphalt shingled roof has a lifespan of around 25 years if it's top of the line. If your forever house is indeed your forever house, these are expenses that you can expect over the course of a couple decades as you need to replace these things. And don't forget, too, that there will also be other maintenance and repairs along the way. And 
and there will also be other updates and improvements that you may want to make as well. Nothing lasts forever. You are probably going to want to renovate or remodel at some point. Trust me. As turnkey and just move in ready that a house may be when you buy it, there will come a time when your house starts looking a little long in the tooth. Plumbing leaks need to be fixed as soon as possible, or they can end up causing more expensive damage. Maybe the kitchen cabinets are starting to fall apart. Wouldn't it be nice to remove part of this wall to open things up a bit? Uh, we need a 240-volt charger in our garage for our electric car. The big oak tree in the front yard is dying and needs to be removed. The back deck is starting to rot. <clears throat> Wood doesn't last forever, you know. Some water is coming in the basement whenever it rains. What do we do about that? Landscaping? Gutters? Waterproofing? The list goes on and on and on. There are two categories of home improvements. There's nice to have and there's we got to take care of this now or we're in for a world of hurt. And I can tell you from experience that if you treat yourself to a nice to have, the we got to take care of this now will inevitably rear its ugly head soon after. About a month after we bought our house, the one that we're in now, we decided to replace the front entry, the uh, front door and the sidelight and all that. The old one was pretty beat up, and we thought that we'd take advantage of a home show special. A new entry was nice to have. But less than a month after we signed that contract, our basement flooded. There wasn't enough damage to involve our homeowner's insurance, and even if we had, our deductible was pretty high anyway. But in order to prevent a repeat, we decided that we'd have a French drain system installed. Now, I don't want to get into the whole debate about waterproofing here, but we did this in order to prevent a future world of hurt. Had we known about the world of hurt... We would have postponed the nice to have, but let's face it, things rarely work out that way. They say that you should set aside one to two percent of your home's value per year for home maintenance and repairs. So for a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar house, that's about twenty five hundred to five thousand dollars per year. Now you're not going to be spending that each year. One year you might only spend a thousand bucks, next year you might need to spend thirty five hundred bucks. But the idea is that's the average that you can expect to spend over the course of homeownership. Um, how many of us actually do that? When you are budgeting for your mortgage payments and utility bills, not to mention groceries and transportation and retirement savings and other life stuff, do you actually have $200 to $400 per month to earmark for home repairs? And it's funny because the bank never really mentions that at all, do they? Ask the bank how much house you can afford and they will answer you that your housing costs, which according to them consists of your mortgage payments, principal, interest, and taxes, plus heating, shouldn't be more than about 30% of your gross pay. It's a simple rule of thumb, really. Your total debt payments when you take into consideration your car and student loans on top of that, 
your total debt payments shouldn't exceed 40%. That's all the bank is really concerned with. Notice that repair and maintenance is not part of this calculation. And there's a whole lot of other stuff that's not included in that calculation either. Like travel. Do you like to travel? Would you like to travel? Or entertainment. Concerts, sporting events, even just heading out for a dinner and movie. I guess you could also include your cable and internet bill in there as well. And what about kids? Your marital and family situation can change from the time you first get your mortgage. Kids don't come cheap. I mean, they eat your food. They leave lights on. They need clothes that you have to pay for. And then there's the activities. Hockey, figure skating, gymnastics, music lessons, summer camp. It gets expensive. When you first get your mortgage, you might only have one kid. A few years later, one thing leads to another, and now you have two kids. Congratulations. You have now doubled your child-related expenses. But that whole debt-service ratio thing that the bank is so concerned with doesn't take into account the size of your family. Single guy or family of six, the amount of money they will lend you is the same. When I was buying my first house, I went to the bank to get pre-approved for a mortgage. I told the guy what price range I was looking at, and he asked me about my income and my debts. Now, at the time, I didn't even have a car loan, so I was in good shape. So we're sitting there. He punches the numbers in his calculator. He scribbles some numbers on his notepad. And then he looks up at me and he says, I got good news for you. You can afford a lot more house than you think you can. Wow. Now, if I was like a lot of people, I would have started looking at houses in that new price range and basically maxed out. But I ran my own numbers. What my payments would be, what other stuff I wanted to spend my money on. Now, at the time I was single, but I knew that was likely going to change over the life of the mortgage. I also didn't have car payments, but I figured that the car I was driving wasn't going to last over the life of the mortgage either. But even when I ran the numbers based on my situation at the time, which, let's face it, was as good as it was ever going to get, I still wasn't happy with the bottom line. So even though the bank was willing to lend me more, much more, I wasn't willing to borrow it. The bank said, you can afford this much house. I said, (laughs) nope. But that's not to say that I wasn't tempted. Houses in the higher price range were a lot nicer. A lot nicer. Why settle? And why, pray tell, would the bank encourage you to not settle? for a less expensive house because they are selling you a mortgage. The more you borrow, the more they make. Before the financial meltdown in 2008, the banks were all about refis, refinances. Interest rates were low, not as low as they are now, but still low. Now is the time to refinance your mortgage, they said and consolidate your debts. Credit card debt? 
folded into the mortgage. The payments were more manageable, but now you were extending that credit card debt over a much longer period of time. People were folding in car loans into their mortgages. So now instead of a six or seven year loan to pay off a car, they were actually taking 20 to 25 years paying that car off along with their house. The payments were lower. It didn't increase the mortgage payments by that much because the interest rates were lower. But the total amount that you would end up paying was a whole lot more. And now the bank, the mortgage lender, was getting all that juicy interest, not just from the house, not just from the house, but also from the car and the credit card debt. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? Well, we all know what happened. When interest rates went up, people defaulted on their loans. Rules of supply and demand put downward pressure on housing prices, setting a vicious cycle in motion. And we ended up in a pretty bad recession. Now, there were other causes, but that was one of the causes. Now, I'm getting a little off topic here. The thing to remember is that the banks want you to borrow as much money from them as possible because that's how they make their money. They sell you the dream in order to sell you a mortgage. So who else is selling you the dream of home ownership? Well, that would be the real estate agents, of course. Let us help you find your dream home. And why not? Think about it. They earn a commission, or a share of the commission, on the sale of the house when you buy. And when you decide to upgrade, they can earn a commission on the sale of the house, as well as a commission on whatever house you end up buying. The same agent could potentially be involved in the sale of the same house multiple times, earning a commission each time. Pretty sweet deal. What else is there that can be sold multiple times? Cars, maybe. The dealership buys the car from the factory, and maybe a few years later they get the same car back as a trade-in and can sell it as used or previously owned. But each time... They're actually buying the car. The real estate agent is not buying the house. They are only marketing it. Yes, there are costs associated with that, but again, they are not buying the house. I want to be clear here that I absolutely mean no disrespect whatsoever. There are a lot of advantages to using the services of a real estate agent when buying or selling a house. And personally speaking, I would never buy or sell a house without an agent. But they have their motives for selling you a house, so some salesmanship is to be expected. We are all familiar with the euphemisms that come with real estate. Cozy means small. Handyman special means it's falling apart. Original charm means it desperately needs updating. Veteran real estate agent Lionel Hutz explains it to rookie agent Marge Simpson. Marge, I had a lot of calls about you. Customers love your no-pressure approach. Well, like we say, the right house for the right person. Listen, it's time I let you in on a little secret, Marge. The right house is the house that's for sale. 
The right person is anyone. But all I did was tell the truth. Of course you did. But there's the truth and the truth. Let me show you. It's awfully small. I'd say it's awfully cozy. That's dilapidated. Rustic. That house is on fire. Motivated seller. God, I miss Phil Hartman. Another popular real estate selling point is same as rent. The idea is that if you purchase a house, your mortgage payments are going to be the same as your rent would be if you were renting the same house. But remember what we talked about before. There are other expenses associated with owning that don't exist if you rent. Things like furnace, roof, and other repairs and maintenance, and property taxes. Don't forget about the property taxes. Are those amounts taken into consideration with same as rent? Like everything else, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Why would you rent when you're only making the landlord rich? Isn't it better to own a house and get a return on your investment? Well, yeah, sure, you're going to pay all that mortgage interest on top of your purchase price, but once everything is paid off, you have this asset that may have grown in value since you purchased it. But keep in mind that a house is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it when you sell it. Housing values usually go up, but as we saw in 2008, they can also go down. My dad passed away in 2008, and I had to sell his house. Between his passing in March and the time I sold the house in July, the recession had started taking hold, and the value probably dropped about 10%. The timing was bad. That's the thing with real estate. You just never know. You can't count on some theoretical value on paper. A house is only worth what a buyer is willing to pay. Until then, it's an expense. And one could argue, it's a liability. It requires constant upkeep. There's grass to cut, there's trees to trim, leaves to rake, snow to shovel, there's taxes and utilities to pay, and home improvements to make. I could talk about home improvements and whether or not they qualify as investments in and of themselves, but that's a whole nother topic. Suffice to say that there are other costs associated with home ownership beyond just the mortgage. But anyway, when it comes to home ownership, you really should pay attention to who is trying to sell you on the concept and understand their motives, whether they're the banks or the real estate agents. Their best interest is not necessarily your best interest. When it comes to home ownership, you have to be smart. I've given examples of a house in the $250,000 price range, and you can see where the math doesn't always work in your favor, especially if you max out on your mortgage for that amount. The higher the price, the more commission for the agent. The higher the price, the larger the mortgage and therefore the more interest for the bank. It seems that they both want to put you in the most expensive house that you can afford. But to be fair, agents will list houses that are 
great starter houses, ideal for first-time buyers, or a great retiree home. If you are a first-time home buyer, this is where you should start. Resist the upsell to the most expensive house that you can afford. The first real estate agent that I ever dealt with explained how a house can be an investment without ever using the words property ladder. And it goes something like this. You start with something relatively inexpensive, like a two-bedroom house. Even if the bank says that you can afford something more expensive. But now, instead of maxing out your payments on a 25-year mortgage, where for the first few years, most of your payments are going to interest, you can make those same payments on a shorter loan, like maybe a 20-year or even a 15-year mortgage. More of your money goes to the principal and you build equity faster. After several years, you can take that equity and put it towards a more expensive house while keeping your payments relatively close to what you've already been paying. Then, rinse and repeat. The idea is that you start small, when you don't need as much room, like when you're single. As your family grows, your housing needs grow, and you can afford to upsize. Eventually, the kids will leave the nest, and now you can downsize from that big family home back into a small starter or retiree home, and that should leave you with a substantial amount of cash left over, which essentially serves as your retirement fund. That's why it's so important to look at your mortgage payments. You want to knock down that principal as quickly as possible, so you pay as little interest as possible, so you can build up as much equity as possible. That's why buying as much house as you can afford is not the best course of action. Now, like everything else, there are a lot of other variables involved, like location and local market and so on. But as a general rule, this idea works. But does it work as an actual investment? Will you actually end up with more money than you put in when all the expenses of maintenance are factored in? Maybe. Maybe not. But climbing the property ladder will usually give you more bang for your buck than buying as much house as you can afford. Another way to look at it is this. When you talk about investments, you usually talk about things like the stock market and mutual funds, right? You buy and hold. Or maybe you make some trades along the way. But those stocks and mutual funds only have value on paper until you sell them. When you do sell, you give up ownership of those stocks, or whatever, and receive money in exchange. And if it all goes well, you end up with more money than what you started with. When you buy a house, you buy and hold, because, well, you're living in the house. You put money into the house and its related expenses. Any increase in value is only on paper until the time that you sell. When you sell, you're giving up ownership of the house and you receive money in exchange. And if all goes well, you end up with more money than what you started with. The difference is that you still need a place to live. So you're going to be taking some of that money and you're going to be spending it on housing. Do not mistake freeing up capital with making a profit. All that being said, let's compare 25 years of paying down a mortgage 
versus 25 years of paying rent. Right? Let's use the example of that $250,000 house again. Right? You start with a $50,000 down payment. You have a mortgage for $200,000. Your interest on the mortgage is another 100000 bucks. So after 25 years, you will have paid roughly $350,000. During that 25 years, you will also have paid property taxes. Let's go cheap and say 2500 bucks a year average. That comes to 62500 Throw in a furnace and air conditioner. Let's go cheap. 5000 bucks. New roof. 7500 bucks. So that's another $75,000 on top of the $350,000. Okay? Now, let's look at rent. The best case scenario is that you pay an average of $1,000 a month over the course of 25 years with no rent increases. Okay? That comes to $300,000. So, at first blush, 25 years in a house versus 25 years of rent, the house costs you about $425,000. The rent costs you $300,000. So, the house costs you $125,000 more than the apartment. But the difference is, and this is where they get into that whole investment thing, the house has value, whereas the rental does not. After 25 years of paying rent, you have nothing. After 25 years of paying off a mortgage, the house is worth something. And as long as it's worth more than $125,000 when you sell, you come out ahead. The difference is, over the course of 25 years, that you are tying up $425,000 of your money in homeownership versus only $300,000 for the rental. But if you are fortunate and the house increases in value, you are going to come out ahead. But if you don't sell at all, after you pay off the mortgage, your housing costs are going to plummet because you no longer have the mortgage. Whereas if you rent, your housing costs are not going to change because you still have to pay rent. So I guess they are not being completely dishonest. At the end of the day, buying a house is a better deal than renting if you can afford to tie up more of your money while paying off the mortgage. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of the Thumb and Hammer podcast. The website is thumbandhammer.com and you can follow me on Twitter at Thumb and Hammer, all one word. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Stitcher and you can reach me at thumbandhammer.com slash contact. Thank you very much for spending part of your day with me. I will talk to you again in a couple weeks. Cheers. Cheers.